welcome to Modern Anarchy, the podcast featuring real conversations with conscious objectors to the status quo. I'm your host, Nicole. Hello, hello. On today's episode, we have sex educator Aubrey Lancaster join us for a conversation all about discovering her asexual identity. Together, we talk about the spectrum of attraction, polyamicable quadricules, and questioning the hierarchy of the nuclear family. Y'all, this was such a great episode to record with Aubrey. I just got to sit back and let her go and talk all about relationship, anarchy, the hierarchies, questioning the status quo, and so it was great. Anytime that I can sit back and just hold this container space for someone to preach the message of this podcast, I am just delighted. So thank you, Aubrey. I think y'all are really going to enjoy this episode, so tune in. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Well, hi. It's nice to meet you. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> How are you doing today? I'm all right. Working on paperwork for my son's kindergarten admissions. Oh. <laughs> what kind of admissions do you need for kindergarten? Oh, my God. There's like a whole packet. Like they need your kid's medical history, and then they have all these questions about their personality. Wait, what? So, mm-hmm. Yeah, they have a whole bunch of questions about their personality. They ask, like, are they a leader or a follower? How do you know in kindergarten? I mean, he's definitely a leader. Hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I can write that essay. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. Wow. Wow. So interesting. Where are you located at, too? Uh, Simi Valley, California. Oh my god, I grew up in Camarillo. Oh, hey! Hey! (laughs) What are the odds? You know the show. I I don't pick anybody. It just goes in and out. Yeah, like, hi. And Destiny was in Thousand or is in Feeny as well. Okay, nice. Okay, yeah, that makes sense because of Cal Lutheran. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Okay, interesting. So what what do you do? Destiny didn't really tell me too much other than what uh, they had said in the email. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I'm a sex educator. I've been uh, doing sex education for 17 years now. I started out with passion parties. Mm -hmm. Do you know what those are? No, but I am really excited to hear. (laughs) Uh, They were uh, basically adult party, adult product parties. Yeah. Kind of like a Tupperware party, but with adult products. I love this direction. (laughs) Yes. So yeah, so I would go into somebody's house and set up a display of the products and then go through a presentation where people get to try the lotions, taste the edibles, pass around the toys, and wow. then we would do one-on-one confidential ordering. And my entire presentation was 
providing education and talking about the arousal process and you know, uh, relationships and all of that fun stuff. And then yeah. people come in to the one-on-one to order their products and also ask more personal questions. And yes. And then our company was actually sold to Pure Romance in mm-hmm. 2016. Mm-hmm. And I tried for four years to make that company work for me, but it just wasn't the same for me. Passion oh, Parties no. was my home and Passion Parties was gone. Oh, yeah. What was... <laughs> What what was the big difference then, I guess, like more of the corporateness of it compared to the personal in-home connection? Oh, no. It, the the job was still mostly oh, the same. okay. But yes, the corporate office, very different people. Pastor Parties was based out of Vegas. Pure Romance is based out of Ohio. And there was just a very different corporate atmosphere. There were different rules. Um, passion parties, we could have anyone at our parties. Pure Romance, we were not allowed to have men at our parties. And, and, you know, there, there was just, there was a number of things that just didn't align for me. And I finally was ready to move on. And then 2020 happened. (laughs) Are you okay? (laughs) First question. (laughs) Right. And spending that much time with nothing to do, you find things to do. And along that path, I finally understood asexuality. Wow. And realized that I had been mistaking romantic attraction for sexual attraction my entire life. Wow. And so I decided to just completely dive into that and learn everything I could and immerse myself in the communities. And I actually spent a semester specifically studying asexuality and aromanticism through Goddard Graduate Institute. Interesting. Okay, yeah. And while I didn't finish the master's program with them, I did complete the semester and I switched over to a certification program through ASEC. So now I'm working to become a, Mm -hmm. yeah, so now I'm working to become a certified sex educator Mm -hmm. and I developed a class for therapists, counselors, and educators to introduce them to asexuality and aromanticism Mm. and a lot of the different issues that surround Mm -hmm. it. So that's been my primary work for the last a year or so. Yeah. Wow. I'm excited to talk to you. So when you were saying that you noticed this big shift in your own personal orientation from the romantic, you know, to the sexual and figuring out that you leaned more romantically, could you explain what you were going through at that time? What was that process like? I'm sure there's a whole story there. (laughs) Um, Well, you know, it's something that is kind of layers and layers that you uncover over the years because the understandings of asexuality are so intricately connected to understandings of libido and the different kinds of attraction. And so uncovering the idea that libido does not equal sexual attraction, that you can have a libido, basically just a desire for an orgasm Mm. and not have it connected to another person. Ooh, okay. You got to say more. (laughs) Yeah, because people are like, what? (laughs) So asexuality is experiencing little to no sexual attraction to other people, while sexual attraction is a little bit more of a question of, well, what exactly is sexual attraction? And while I don't experience sexual attraction, and I can't put my finger directly on it for you, I can tell you some of what I do get from other people. Um, I think an easy analogy is lust. Mm -hmm. But 
that doesn't necessarily encompass it for everyone. Some people find it to be more like a craving, mm. uh, you know, for mm-hmm. sexual contact with another person, for interpersonal right. sex specifically. Yeah. And for some people, it's just, you know, just appealing. Like somebody could be appealing sure. in a sexual way. Whereas mm-hmm. with libido, it's about, you know, do you want an orgasm? Your body is just kind of like, hey. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm over here. <laughs> right. And for some people who are asexual, they just want to take care of that themselves. Some people who are asexual don't actually have any libido and don't want to uh, self-pleasure or do anything yeah, like that. And yeah. other people who are asexual are interested in exploring interpersonal sex because it could be fun. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Not necessarily because they're attracted to the other person. Right, right. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So then for you, how did, how did you notice this difference? <laughs> uh, well, it took me a very long time because I was yeah. in sex education for so long. Exactly. And I, was, <clears throat> I was focused on trying to understand the mechanics of arousal because yeah. when I first got into it, I was married to somebody else than who I am now. Oh, wow. And yeah. <laughs> And he was very high sex drive and wanted sex all the time. And I didn't. Yeah. And so I'm like, well, what do I do about this? And so I actually got into passion parties to try and learn how to enjoy and want. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Yes. And it was very quick that I learned that most people with vulvas need clitoral stimulation to be able to orgasm. And so I went, oh, there it is. There's my problem. I figured it out. Yeah. Yeah. We just need to work on the clitoris. But that didn't really create the desire. Mm. But Passion Parties was full of toys and accessories and creams and enhancement creams. And enhancement creams are amazing. You put a little dab of an enhancement cream directly onto the clitoris and around the labia, and it gets all of the nerve endings wake up and you get blood flowing. And your body is like, hey, let's get that orgasm going. But it didn't really say, hey, let's get it going with that person. (laughs) Yeah, wow. So I, I I found all of these toys that can make orgasms easier, that can make pleasure more intense, and so many different things to make sex more fun and more yes. enjoyable. And yet I still struggled to want it. Ooh. Mm. And so I just assumed I had a low libido. I went to a doctor. The doctor said, um, you know, here's some testosterone cream, rub it on your leg. That'll help. Wow. Interesting. <laughs> Which uh, didn't help. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, and I, I only took it briefly, but then, you know, eventually my ex-husband and I split. There was numerous <laughs> conflicts within our relationship beyond that. And I very quickly actually found my current husband on OkCupid. Yay! <laughs> now look at your smile. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we've actually been together 13 years now. Wow. And during that time, he is a very generous partner. And I have been very, very happy with him <sighs> and in love with him. And we love doing things together. And we share a lot of common interests and beliefs Mm. and goals and you know the way we live the way we enjoy our our friends and family and socializing and the way we decorate our house Mm. and you know all of these different ways that we enjoy connecting emotionally and intellectually and yet as much as we did connect really well 
sexually, sure. I still didn't need it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, after having a kid, that libido kind of says, you know what? We're, we got other stuff going on. Yeah. <laughs> and then I start to get touched out from having a baby because, you know, they are physically in contact with you 24 seven. Right. That makes sense. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and so that, that need for touch from another human being is suddenly the reverse. It's, mm. Oh my God, I can't be touched in right space. now. Yeah. Yeah. So any value I had in sexual connection before really just, it wasn't there. And mm. so that aspect of the relationship became more difficult. So when I finally found asexuality and understood that all this time, there's this thing that other people experience that I mm. never did. Mm. That while I would fall in love and I would want that feeling of love to be reciprocated, yeah. I never looked at another person and went, oh my God, they're hot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that difference. I can look at my husband and go, oh my gosh, he's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Like I could look at him all day, but any sexual connection we have is about intimacy and mm. the love and the romantic connection. Yeah. And frankly, I'm, I, there's other ways that I would prefer to find that connection within our relationship. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So as soon as I understood the concept of asexuality and finally realized, oh my God, there's a difference between sexual and romantic attraction. Mm-hmm. And then starting to learn about other attractions, aesthetic attraction and intellectual mm-hmm. attraction, emotional attraction, uh, social attraction, spiritual attraction, yeah. sensual attraction. That's kind of that wanting to hug and touch and kiss, mm-hmm. but not necessarily involve genital or sexual contact. Right, right, right. So when you start differentiating all of these kinds of attractions and the way we interact, it starts to, I started to see that the sexual was never the part I needed, Mm -hmm. but society tells you everybody wants it. Everybody wants sex, right? It's part of being human. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you just have a low libido. It's female Mm -hmm. sexual dysfunction. Yes. So it's this, pathologization Mm, it's this diagnosis that there's something wrong with you yep yep and that there is distress between you and your partner only validates that in a pathological sense but if you are able to be just content with all the other ways that you can connect with people and you just don't need sex why do we have to pathologize that it's a great question (laughs) you know can't we just say yeah, it's an activity. Some people need it. I get that. For some people, it is an intense craving. It is a massive part of their life. For other people, it's an activity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why is it so hard to carve out more space for the diversity of ways people show up in the world as themselves? Mm-hmm. And then hierarchical prioritization of sex and romance is at the top. Platonic interactions are always below that and always subservient to a sexual romantic relationship. This is where the relationship anarchy comes in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure you've heard of that. 
Absolutely. I do talk about that in my work because yeah. it is a way to make sure to value platonic intimacy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tell and me. Recognize. Mm-hmm. I'm just so curious since it's when I'm studying for my dissertation, I have to ask, like, what do you, what do you say about it? Yeah. How do you see it? About relationship anarchy? Yeah. The way I see it is it's really just defining relationships in your own way and figuring out what it is that you want to get out of the relationship. What kind of connection do you want to have? How many people do you want to have involved in your close intimate world Mm -hmm. and why why are your best friends not valued at a similar Mm, level exactly you know my best friends I have three best friends from college Mm -hmm. and they're my bad girls (laughs) hello bad girls who are listening to this (laughs) (laughs) do you remember the movie bad girls with Drew Barrymore Mm -hmm. it was a 1994 movie okay yeah 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 When I was in college, my three best friends, we were just kind of acquaintances at the time, they went and watched that movie. And, you know, they did that thing that teens do like, oh, oh my gosh, I'm Cody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they named their first three characters. And then they went, well, who's, who's, who's Anita? Oh, hmm, yeah, we need an Anita. We need a fourth. Mm. And I don't know how I was blessed by it, but they decided I was Anita. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) And so the next day I ran into them in the dorm uh, lounge mm-hmm. and Jen, <laughs> who, <laughs> who is Lily, the Drew Barrymore yeah, yeah, character, yeah, yeah, yeah. she ran up to me and threw her arms around me, gave me a huge hug yeah. and a kiss straight on the lips and mm. said, did you hear? We're best friends now. Ah! <laughs> and I went, okay. Yeah. And so we became best friends and then we got to know each other. Beautiful. I love this. And we have been best friends for over 20 years now. And wow. the four of us have maintained this non-hierarchical best friend, uh, what we now call our <laughs> polyamical quadricule. <laughs> <laughs> because amical attraction yeah. is a sisterhood or sibling type bond like a Mm -hmm. best friend type attraction and so we're polyamical and instead of a polycule it's our quadricule yes 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 (laughs) and our friendship has survived each of us getting married uh, mm. Several of us getting divorced and remarried, yeah. um, having kids, moving and living in different parts of the country, having partners that were jealous of our friendship. And I never really understood that until I got to the place where I really did recognize how our society devalues platonic relationships. Yes. I just want to say a big, huge Amen. And I love that you're preaching my value system. So like, this is great. I'm going to take another step back. Like, why do you think that society does this? Because I agree with you very hard. Oh, well, I know. Social power structures have often come back to the construct of marriage and nuclear families, family values. All of this coming out of not just society, but religions and, you know, the way that Western imperial uh, cultures have evolved. Now, obviously, there are other cultures that Mm -hmm. don't necessarily have that hierarchical structure, Mm -hmm. but within this 
Western model that Americans are expected to live in, there is. And then there's also the aspects of uh, gender and the power structures within that. People who are socialized as women, it's understood that they're going to have multiple emotional connections within their life. So long as they respect that their partner is their number one. Yes. Jesus, I'm rolling with you. Yes. Mm. But people socialized as men are expected to not be emotionally connected to pretty much anyone except their partner and maybe their very close family member. So when I was emotionally very close to my friends, Mm. some of my previous partners would get very jealous because they saw that as a rivalry. They saw that as me giving a part of myself to someone else instead of to them. Mm. And like what? Hold like <laughs> what? Even I know and I agree people say that, but it's just so fascinating. Like I'm not giving away parts of myself, nor do you own any parts of me. Yeah. What 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 even <sighs> When you realize that love is truly abundant. Yes. And if you want to love You can love as many people as you want to. And yes, you're going to have stronger connections and more frequent interactions with some people than others, but that doesn't mean that you have to rank them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I think that's one of my biggest critiques of, I guess it's not necessarily just monogamy, but our whole Western relational hierarchy i don't know what else to call it right yeah that really has said um yeah you're the person that you should give all of yourself to all of your time your energy your devotion is your romantic and sexual partner which have to fit together (laughs) and that is the person for you which then i think is exactly what you're saying you know then our friends get pushed into this category of yeah friends not as important as partner and it really does create this intense hierarchy of who is more valuable in your life which i think distorts the beauty of the relationships that you have right when i absolutely yeah when i start to see the beauty of my friendships for the intense love that they are i feel more connected i feel happier when i take out this hierarchy and yes step into that love is abundant i can really really love my friends and really, really love a partner over here. Like, (laughs) that's totally possible. Yeah. And and when you are in that space of recognizing those connections and that relationship, you start to question kind of all of the constructs that society imposes upon us. Because while I'm not a romantic, there are people who don't experience romantic attraction. They don't, either they don't experience falling in love or they don't connect to society's concept and constructs of romantic love because there's really nothing that could be done romantically that can't also be done platonically (laughs) the meaning of an action is defined by those involved it's defined by intention now of course there's always the issues of intention versus impact but in this particular concept what we're talking about is why are you bringing somebody flowers can it be just to cheer them up and to show them you love them without Mm -hmm. it having a romantic implication so if I had known any of this way back when I was in college, and if we had a wider understanding of the kinds of relationship structures, 
for all I know, my polyamical quadricule would have been my lifelong relationship and my primary housing form. You know, I mean, yeah. I've lived with Jen and our two other friends have lived together, but then we all ended up in our separate relationships. Yeah. But I wonder how many people would form nesting partners with non-romantic, non-sexual people as their primary living partners and their primary emotional support. And yet we're told that's just not even an option, mm-hmm. but that is less than mm-hmm. that is a failure. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think it could, so, I mean, this, this is a whole different paradigm, right? A world that we could totally imagine <laughs> right. together. Right. Exactly. But like, yeah. What if you lived in that space and then even, you know, for the people that I, yeah. Why do you have to live with your partner? Why is that just even like, right? Like that idea first and foremost should be questions at questioned. I think back in the day when we had farms, it made sense. Like these sort of things made sense that you'd want to stay. But I think exactly what we were talking about is also another thing that has made sense for centuries, which is community structures. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We've always thrived in that creating communities, not necessarily nuclear families, a little bit bigger than that. And I think that's exactly what you're hitting on is what if we had a different understanding of community and what it meant to build a life? What happened to our village? Yeah. What happened to the village? You know, I mean, in a village structure, are are people always going to be completely isolated just with their partners? No. I mean, you know, how, how much different would the world be if we had houses that were designed for multiple families and you had, you know, your own living spaces and then your larger community spaces. And, you know, moms wouldn't just be alone with their baby all day. They would be there with the other people that live in the house with them. Mm -hmm. There's places (laughs) in Sweden doing this, like trying these sorts of like lifestyle, like living arrangements with like completely different strangers and building a community. I am so sure that there's people that have done it, that there's cultures that it's the predominant way of doing things that it was at some time for us. But our current model, this idea that, you know, two parents, maybe, you know, two and a half kids, white picket fence. Heterosexual. And you are now responsible for the entire house. Yes, heterosexual. Okay, I'm going to go up. Can't forget that piece. (laughs) (laughs) There's all of these expectations, that relationship escalator idea. And we just assume this is what we have to do. Yes. And we keep doing it, assuming that we're just doing it wrong. (laughs) And then complaining when we don't like it. Yeah. That's the funniest part. And we're like, I don't like this. Ah, I'm going to get out. I'm going to divorce. I'm going to be single. Yada, yada, yada. And it's like, well, yeah, like this is the problem. <laughs> yeah. I was reading this one book. I think it's called How Love Conquered Marriage. And it was talking about mm. this one um, society in another country that where when people are in romantic and sexual relationships – they do not expect love and actually think love is bad to have within that relationship because it pulls you away from the connections with the community. Mm. So it's actually mm-hmm. really negative to have love in your like <laughs> reproductive relationships is, or what they're made for mm-hmm. in that society. And so like, I feel like, yeah, the biggest thing I think when we start talking about the, these things, a lot of monogamous people start to say like, Oh my God, you're attacking my structure. You're attacking what I want. And it's like, No, what I really want to say is just I hope you recognize this is a very Western context 
and it's a new experiment that has only happened in the last couple of years, right, <laughs> in our human history, and just take a lens to that and try to hope to expand that perspective and see the other ways that people can relate. Yeah. Well, and romantic love is based on actual physical responses to mm-hmm. things. So romantic love was best defined by Dorothy Tenov in her book, Love and Limerence. Mm-hmm. And by Helen Fisher's work. And they've actually done the studying to, uh, Dorothy Tenov did six years of research and talked to over a thousand people yeah. to listen to all of their stories about romantic love and mm-hmm. to document some of the primary aspects of what goes into uh, defining romantic mm-hmm. love. And then yeah. Helen Fisher took it even further. She did fMRI studies of people, uh, their brain scans when they're in love, when they've been rejected by love. And th- there's some very specific aspects of it, such as a overwhelming need to be loved in return. Okay. This is the primary goal of what Dorothy Tenoff calls limerence. Mm-hmm. It is this need to have love reciprocated. Sex can be a symbol of that reciprocation, but it's not necessarily the goal. Okay. So <laughs> when somebody is in limerence, mm-hmm. they will obsess over the person that they are limerent for. Uh, anywhere from, you know, thinking about them a little bit to complete takeover of their brain. All yeah. roads lead back to thinking about that person, no matter what it is you're thinking about. You're thinking about your cup of coffee, and then you think about how it's warm, and you're thinking about how your partner's kind of warm, and you're thinking about, oh my God, I really want to be warm with them. Yeah. Where does that even come from? And it also can override your sense of logic, because there is this intense need to be everything that that person would want you to be. Mm. So there can be a takeover of self, And a conforming to what the other person wants. There's also this aspect of just very uncomfortable shyness, almost an inability to contradict anything that would, you know, anything that would discourage the person from liking you in return. And then there's the chemical doping that goes along with it, which people call an addiction. And that's the huge boost of euphoria when you think they love you back or when you have that moment of of truth where both of you admit your love for each other and oh my gosh it's a fairy tale and it's beautiful and it's amazing and the energy and everything and then the intense heartache if Mm. for some reason you think they don't love you back and limerence thrives on hope and uncertainty Mm. so so long as you have some sort of hope that they might like you back that limerence continues or uncertainty as to whether or not the relationship might happen. So that's why there's that Romeo and Juliet effect. (laughs) The parents interfering saying, no, you can't be together. Well, now that limerence is even stronger because there's adversity. So the limerence is strongest in the beginning of a relationship or going into a relationship and starting a relationship through limerence can absolutely be a healthy and beautiful thing. You know, my, my relationship with my current husband started very limitly for both of us. I remember mm-hmm. sitting in the car after a date, I was dropping him off because we kind of alternated and I was just, I just kept staring into his eyes and I just didn't even want to leave that moment. Mm, yeah. But, you know, there's some people that just don't experience that. 
And the idea of being in a place where they're expected to feel this intense love for another person in a very particular way can be very off-putting. Mm-hmm. You know, when you want somebody to be your best friend, but they're in love with you. It's awkward. Yeah. Yeah. For somebody who is a romantic, if they don't experience limerence or they do only un- under certain specific circumstances, similar to asexuality, there's a gray area. Yeah. That can be a huge disconnect. And it, it, as far as society goes, if you are not able to fall in love, you're not able to have any sort of committed long term relationship. Mm-hmm. And if you want to be single, oh my gosh. <laughs> Exactly. These societal pressures are not just for the sexual expectations of a relationship, Mm. but this expectation of falling in love. Mm. And that if you don't, again, there must be something wrong with you. You just haven't found the right person yet. Right, right, right. It's always (laughs) our fault. When you might have beautiful, amazing friendships all around you that you love and you connect with, and these are the relationships you want in your life. These are all the relationships you want in your life. Why is that not enough? Right. Right. Exactly. That's what I was going to say is society tells you that if you don't have a romantic and or sexual relationship that you're not your life isn't really meaningful. You know, that is kind of, I mean, not, maybe not said directly, but very clearly said through media, every single story, people falling in love. And that's the point of the film, right? Like we get the messaging. Exactly. Right. Through all of our art and culture and all this stuff, you know, the people that don't fall in love get left to the side. Mm -hmm. And especially when they may have a friend where they are extremely close to that friend mm. and that all of their time with that friend but then that yeah. friend finds a romantic interest and suddenly they have nothing they're not valued as much they are not constantly in that person's life the way that they were before mm-hmm. and they get shoved aside into this kind of third wheel or subpar best yes. friend but not the priority exactly And that's when the limerence is really great, all that stuff's going on, and then a few years down the line, you're like, wow, why am I so isolated? And you're like, well, because you did that to yourself again, right? Like, we do that, and we just like, I mean, because that's a societal messaging says, spend all your time, live with this person, travel with this person, do all the stuff with this person. And then, yeah, in that process, if you don't maintain and equally value the other relationships that you have in your life, they're going to fall because it takes time and energy to have relationships and you have yeah. to invest that. There's just such this like warped, I don't even know what it is, pressure to devote all of that to one person, your exactly. romantic and or sexual partner that you build the nuclear family with. And yeah. that's that's what we want to challenge, right? It's like be monogamous, have a great time. Like, but <laughs> just remember the other people in your world and remember the importance of the other relationships that you have. Mm-hmm. Monogamy within sexual and romantic connections is a specific kind of emotional commitment, whereas you can still have that emotional intimacy with other people. Depends. It <laughs> well, does. Obviously, some people are not, don't think they can or yeah. are told that they cannot. But exactly. when we step back out of those frameworks and those structures, we can recognize that friendships are beautiful yes. and we can step away from this concept of just friends 
Yes, exactly, exactly. And I think the tricky piece then is when you say that, though, partners are like, well, mm -hmm. yeah, but what if you're sexually attracted to them? That's always the fear, right? Is that if you're not asexual and you're an allosexual, then you're going to have mm -hmm. a sexual attraction to that person. So it's a threat. And especially as a queer person who's attracted to everyone then mm -hmm. everyone is a threat and it becomes this question of, yeah, how much emotional intimacy is too much that it becomes dangerous yeah. to that monogamous structure that you have. And I think that's the fear. Yeah. But if you can look at your own relationship, if you have more than one best friend, you kind of are already doing it. You already know how to have multiple emotional connections. Mm -hmm. What about your family? You know, what about mentors, coworkers? How many people do you really spend time with in your day? Are you spending time with people that you care about? Mm -hmm. What kind of connection do you have with them? Are you socializing with them? Are you going to parties with them? Are you hanging out with them? Are you talking about spirituality with them? Are right. you having long talks into the night about whatever topic is that interests you guys? Right. All the different kinds of intimacy we have in our lives. And the idea of intimacy has been narrowed down into this concept of just love and sex. But yes. intimacy yes. is sharing space and sharing your truth. And you know, ha having that opportunity to be genuine yes. with another person mm -hmm. and vulnerable. Mm -hmm. None of that has to be sexual or romantic. Exactly. And it better, it doesn't, I mean, a great example of where it should not be for all, Jesus, parenting, right? Yeah. You have deeply intimate relationships with your children. I hope, I hope <laughs> that you're being vulnerable with them and connecting yeah. and holding space with them. And I also hope you're not having sex with them. Like it's so <laughs> fascinating, right? That we yeah. have such a beautiful example of that type of love and then like forget it as if like, yeah, no other context could have that sort of deep love and care. And what about people that have multiple children? Isn't oh, the whole story you? that, of you course, we love them all the same? It's just one. No, just one. <laughs> <laughs> but when, when you recognize, well, I if know. I can love my children, yes, in, I can love all of my children in the same way. Or mm -hmm. we know that even if you don't have children, people in society love their children in yes. different ways sometimes. Yes. But it doesn't mean that they value one more than another. So I, I don't think that we have to take a huge leap out of the concept of monogamy to recognize that monogamy is a social construct. It is an imposed construct. So what kind of relationship do you want to have with other people? That's the real question. Exactly. And it's that simple and then therefore complicated, which I love. <laughs> but like, that's the beauty, right? It's like, what kind of relationships do you want to have? You get to construct it, right? Yeah. And that's the beautiful freedom, kind of like, you know, existentialism really rethought all philosophy to say there is no objective meaning to this life, so you get to create it. And in the same way, there is no objective way to have a meaningful and fulfilling relationship. You get to create that and create them, right? Relationships, plural. <laughs> create the community, the people in your world that you want to sustain and build throughout the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're, we're preaching to each other, you know, someone out here listening knows who's going to get it, but like, wow. Uh, yeah. 
such a pleasure to get to talk to someone about these things because I think um, frequently I am like more in a teaching role. So I love any time <laughs> I can sit back and have someone preach my lessons. I'm like, yeah, yeah. go. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I know I haven't really talked so much about the gendered aspect of it, but yeah. it, it's kind of funny to me because once growing up, as an asexual person and not knowing I was asexual, yeah. you're asked, who are you attracted to? Oh, and of God, course, yeah. it's assumed you're heterosexual unless proven otherwise. Of course. So I could look at girls and go, well, I know I'm not into girls, so I must be into boys. You know, it wasn't even a, a much more of an analysis than that. It mm -hmm. was, well, obviously I'm not attracted to girls. I would know, right? I would know. Right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but with boys, it wasn't necessarily that I was physically attracted to them, but I could imagine these romantic uh, fairy tales with them. And that could appeal to the limerence. And mm -hmm. so I fell for guys all the time when I was growing up. And, and you know, I was never single. Yeah, like, I was never yeah. single. Yeah. <laughs> From the time I was like, had my first boyfriend at 13. Same. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was never single and I was totally fine with it being non-sexual because that didn't matter to me. And we were young enough that at that point, it's assumed that you're supposed to not be sexual. Mm -hmm. Right. You're so while I didn't entirely understand why it was so difficult for some of my friends, <laughs> right. I got this false sense of accomplishment, you know, like, wow, I can resist. <laughs> yes, yeah, so you're like, I'm better than all of you. I got this under control. Uh, I don't think I took it to that level, but I did, <laughs> have that, I did have that thought of, why is this so hard for you? Yeah. <laughs> and then it wasn't until, you know, I got into my late teens that my relationship started to try to become more sexual mm. and it, it, it was it was confusing I was I am not repulsed sure. but it just wasn't my primary focus yeah 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 <laughs> which makes sense and then I met my ex-husband when I was 20 and he was 26 so there was a lot more experience on his end and none sure. on mine but because I was a quote-unquote virgin that was a virtue, right? Mm. I was, I was this prize to be won. Right, and, right. You know, it, it, historically speaking, it was this idea that women are not sexual until they're married and their husbands bloom their sexuality into existence. <sighs> and... <laughs> I mean, you're, yes. Right. That's, there's that implication. And, so when that didn't happen, I had, I was, okay, well, what's wrong with me? Mm. Why do I not like, why is this uncomfortable? Why is this painful? Yeah. Why do I not, you know, what, where is that magical moment that right. this is supposed to create for me? Exactly. And then continuously trying to perform that Oof. for my partner. Yeah. And continuously trying to search out what is it? that I need to create this magical sex thing everybody seems to want. Right. Yeah. But I still felt the love. I still felt mm. that intense need to be loved. And I, I think that contributes a lot to that for alloromantic asexual people 
there is that intense need to be everything for your partner, because not only society say that, but your desire to be loved is also pushing this mindset that you can do it. Yeah. If it's the right magical formula. Mm, mm -hmm, Then it will turn on. Right. Which is then just continually this question of, is it me? Is something wrong with me? And I just can't even imagine what it's like to be in that headspace of asking that question. Yeah. Mm. A lot of people, when they are later in years coming to asexuality, um, or, you know, I'd say younger too, there is that term, broken. Oh, yeah. And it's not just in asexuality. I know Emily Nagoski's book, Come As You Are, Yes. talks a lot about when she taught people about responsive desire yes. that they would say, oh my God, I'm not broken. Yes. Yes. That was my <laughs> response. <laughs> right. And, and I had a similar concept when, when I was going through all of my uh, education that I was learning things along yeah. the path of doing passion parties. I learned about the, you know, the, the cycle of arousal and about I didn't know the term responsive desire, but I learned the concept. So yeah, you were aware. Yeah, I knew that you may not immediately feel sexual desire, but your body can respond and you can start to want it, which Mm -hmm. that's arousal for within asexuality. You know, for me, that was just an arousal response. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Responsive mm -hmm. desire is connected to the libido and arousal, not the concept of sexual attraction. Mm, yeah, wanting sexual, that. Right. Sexual attraction is more connected to whatever mechanism it is that has somebody attracted to their gender, other genders. Mm. Why are people gay? Yeah. We still don't really know how that mechanism works. Mm. And that's the mechanism that asexuality seems to be connected to. Yeah, could you say more? What is the mechanism? Well, first off, sexual attraction is a mechanism of arousal. It is not the only mechanism of arousal. Physical contact, you know, all of these different things. um, Your your senses can actually physically respond Mm -hmm. to stimuli. So you can watch porn and your body can physically respond and get turned on. But that doesn't mean that you're looking at porn going, oh, my God, I want to do that. Yeah, your body is just kind of responding to it. You may layer that on with your own personal desires for a partner or fantasies or things like that. But if you don't experience fantasizing, if you don't experience attraction to other people, and you watch porn and your body responds, it's just kind of like a, oh, that's weird. (laughs) Interesting. Okay, that's an interesting. Okay, well, I guess I should go take care of that now. Interesting. Hmm. I think that it's more of a non-concordant kind of arousal. Okay, so yeah, there's not that. What I'm understanding is like the difference between the libido and it's, you know, coming to presence and you're feeling mm-hmm. that, but not necessarily wanting another person in that dynamic. Right. Right. So uh, an example would be, can, can you picture a friend of yours that you are not attract, not sexually attracted to? Sure. <laughs> okay. So you're sitting on the couch next to this person and you're both watching porn for some reason and you're feeling a response, but does that mean you really want to get it on with your friends? Mm, no. <laughs> and so are you saying that 
asexual people are constantly in that state where it feels like what it feels like to be around friends in that moment. Yeah. Okay. Kind of in that sense. But then you can layer on other things such as yeah. the romantic attraction or mm. aesthetic attraction. You know, when I was younger and I was asked, who are you attracted to? It was like, well, that person's pretty. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I must so be attracted true. to them, right? Yeah. I find them pretty. That's what sexual attraction is, right? Please tell right, me on that. Right, 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 right. But in in that sense, as you can think of somebody that you're not attracted to sexually, mm-hmm. you can still maybe want to cuddle with them. Yeah. You know, you may as long as you're comfortable being around them. You know, you can hold hands, maybe even kiss them sometimes. Right. There's a lot of ways that we still can be very physical with each other. That doesn't have to be sexual. Hmm. Yes. You know. Yes. And now, similarly. Picture somebody that <clears throat> you find sexually disgusting. You got somebody in mind? Yes. <laughs> okay. So now imagine being expected to have sex with that person. Yeah. Some people, and, and here's the thing, only about 7 or 8% of asexual people, according to a recent survey, are sex favorable, meaning mm. they are favorable to the idea of personal interaction and sexual exploration. Sure. There's, I think it was, uh, I don't remember the exact numbers for indifferent, but repulse was like 40%. Wow. Yeah. That's a pretty large number. Yeah. So while we have all of this constant myth busting around asexuality that, Hey, sexual people still sometimes like sex. They may still like sex. They may still want to have sex. All that does is just completely ignore a huge portion of the asexual community who is repulsed by the idea of sex. Yes. And sexual aversion, sexual repulsion in an asexual context is really just the same kind of aversion that you might have to having sex with somebody you're not interested in. You know, we don't pathologize heterosexual men who are repulsed at the idea of having sex with another man. So it is expected that heterosexual men would be completely repulsed by the idea of sex with another man. So when we step back from that and say, oh, well, hey, this person is asexual and they're sexually repulsed to everyone. What? How? make any sense. How? They must, yeah. There must be trauma. There must be something wrong with them. Let's mm. dig into their past and figure out why they're averse, why they're so repulsed by this. And we don't do that with that archetypal heterosexual no. character. Because heterosexuality is the natural way, of course. Mm-hmm. Mm. So just as we've started to shed that expectation yes, and understand that sex and love between men can absolutely be beautiful and desired and Mm -hmm. wanted and the same thing as between women and that there's more gender than this binary that we are expected to live in and that people can be sexually desirous of anyone Mm -hmm. We, we have this need to break out of this shame in our society around (sighs) sex yeah so much yes. so that the idea that somebody doesn't want it, well, they must still be oppressed. Yeah. They must just still be within this sex negative, 
shaming mm-hmm. place. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And somebody who's asexual can absolutely be sex positive, meaning favorable towards the idea of anybody who wants to have sex, go have sex, have fun. But sex repulsed for themselves because it is not appealing to them. They don't Mm -hmm. want it. They don't need it. And it is repulsive because they are not sexually attracted to other people or they just don't desire sex. Some people there are within the asexual community, mm-hmm. some people do identify as asexual who may feel a kind of sexual attraction, but they don't want to act on it. Mm. And so long as they are happy with the way they are, right. why do we have to pathologize that? Right. I think that's exactly what I hope we're coming to as a society, right? Is more less pathologizing of the diversity of types of ways that humans can show up, mm-hmm. right? And then from there also all of these boxes and labels that we've used to say, this is who I am, this is what this is, and there's only these two types or this two mm-hmm. types. And like, how can we get to a greater understanding of our sexual fluidity, our romantic fluidity, the type of relationships that we can have, our own gender fluidity? I think we're coming, I hope, as a society to a more dynamic understanding of ourselves that can also evolve over time and that we're not ever static beings, right? That will ever yeah. fit in just one box. And so we mm-hmm. are doing this active work of trying to tear down those boxes and it's scaring <laughs> people, but there's space on the other side. And, and there is a huge difference between trying to put somebody in a box and somebody getting into that box themselves and saying, oh my God, I found my box. Yeah, yes, 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 <laughs> yes, yes. This box makes sense. It fits. It's comfortable. It helps me communicate my needs and boundaries and Mm -hmm. find my community. That's what labels are. Labels are tools to help you to communicate your needs and boundaries and find community. Mm -hmm. So just as much as there is all of this new language around identities and attractions and orientations, and then there's pushback from people. They're like, why do we need labels? Because some experiences are marginalized to the point of complete erasure Mm -hmm. in our society. Yes. And some people need a word for that to be able to say, look, there's other people that are like me. Exactly. Being able to connect. I mean, that's what language is at the end of the day, right? An ability to connect through a shared language, a shared label Mm -hmm. that, yes, we have the same values and understand each other without having to say all these other words that could be condensed into one word being that label right like that's the beauty of it yes exactly i think it frustrates me too so much when people push on that why do you need this label it's like well because i want to be seen at the end of the day Mm -hmm. i hope that language helps me and other people to be seen and so yeah if a label fits fuck yeah have the label (laughs) and it's not a closed box right that's the thing is i think like if you ever change there's a lot of people that will change over time going in between back forth other things a lot of people who will go every way right and it's always you that is directing that yes yeah it's that self-identification it's taking agency of who you are that's why asexuality cannot be diagnosed it is Mm -hmm. not a diagnosis because it is an identity it's an intrinsic awareness you can't go to the doctor and say am i gay yeah (laughs) they could probably ask you some questions and say well what do you think (laughs) well back in the day they would have said you were sick that's the problem right 
They would have said, yes, you're actually very sick. Yeah. Yeah. And we're still moving through that in a lot of our society. Yeah. You know, and and it's a constant struggle. It's this battle. It's this back and forth between, you know, help me figure out what's wrong with me versus help me to be comfortable with who I am and to declare who I am and Mm -hmm. to be respected for who I am. Yes, yes, yes. And this is why I always take so much pleasure in getting to have people like you on the podcast that are doing this work of advocating other people's awareness of this change that we need as a society to support, yeah, asexual people. It's it's a challenge, especially since I was blown away when I finally understood what the concept was. Having worked mm. in sex education for, at the time, 16 years, so I, I, I yeah. felt like I had failed, Ugh. that I had failed in my career, that I had missed oh. something. How did I go through all of this time and never understand what asexuality was. Mm. I'd heard about it a couple of years beforehand, but I I understood it in terms of libido, not in terms, and and I knew I had a low libido, but I I kind of thought asexual meant that somebody just never got turned on or just didn't like sex at all or never wanted it. So (laughs) especially being sex favorable and having spent so much of my career learning how to enjoy sex, Right. Yes. It, it it took so much longer for me to finally recognize that there still was something that I mm. wasn't experiencing. Yes. And I try and avoid saying missing because I am a whole person. I'm not missing anything. Amen. Yes. But there is part of the experience that other people have that I don't. Yes. And it, it's really hard to find that. And so when I took that next step to start working within sexuality professionals to teach other people more about this. I kept having that question in my mind of, well, they must already know this, right? It was just me that didn't know this. No, 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 no. (laughs) And yet I still were two years past, you know, the start of the pandemic. So much more language has come out around asexuality, so much more awareness around asexuality and aromanticism, and yet I'm still not hearing these words, or they're tokenized. Mm. They're just part of the acronym, if we're even included in the acronym. LGBTQIA2+, use the whole thing. We need it for visibility. The A is not for ally. Allies don't need visibility. We can include allies within community spaces without putting them on the billboard. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. There are other people that need that space. Right. And using the full acronym is a way to engage people in conversation and to bring awareness to these identities that are being erased and ignored. Exactly, exactly. And then that's the biggest thing, right? Being erased and ignored and all we Mm want to do is create more space and create more space Mm -hmm. for people to have their voices be heard recorded shared right (laughs) so that we can keep these voices and these narratives alive and I think yeah that's why I'm so happy that you're doing this work and advocating and sharing your experience that ties so directly into what you're doing I think it I hope that your journey those 16 years of figuring out to come to this (laughs) point might help some other person who needs to hear your journey to better understand themselves. That's the goal, right? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Uh, I hope so. I do want to ask 
one yeah. last question that I ask everyone on the podcast. Uh-oh. I know, I know. It's hard, but also easy. <laughs> okay. I feel like we end up talking about it any- anyways. Um, the one question I do ask everyone is, what is one thing that you wish other people knew was more normal? It could be anything. I mean, it's, it's really any of this, right? But exactly. That's what I was like, easy question. <laughs> everything that I talk about, that these things are normal. Exactly. Um, not wanting sex. Yeah. How about that one? Yeah. Just not needing sex, not needing mm-hmm. love, that it's okay. <laughs> yes, there's space. And for you me. will be okay. Yes. And you there's... know, that's, that's such a hard mm. thing to come to a place of is understanding oh. you will be okay. Yeah. You don't have to do what's expected of you. Mm. Yes. It's, it's, it's painful and it's difficult. And. You feel like you're disappointing people, mm. but it's, it's joyous to come mm. to that realization. And I think anybody who has come to a realization within the queer community has felt that joy. And there's, there's space for that joy mm. with, within those spaces. And that's why those spaces are needed. And that's why asexual and aromantic people need to be included in those spaces and not Mm. just told that you need to get your own space or you're just, you know, that's just normal. (laughs) That's just how everybody is. Yeah. And, you know, we, we need to be seen. People need to be seen. Yes. Yes, exactly. And I'm so thankful for you and for your journey that I think will help people to feel seen. I know there are so many people out there that will resonate with your journey and what you had to go through to find the labels that fit for you to be seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's still going on. We're still working on it's it. It's still a but... battle every day. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I want to say thank you. I know this work isn't easy. You're trying to change a whole paradigm <laughs> that is against you. And so if no one else tells you, I want to tell you thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for creating this space for talking about Uh, these things. Of course. Yeah. It is with so much pleasure that I get to sit back and just see the joy and the passion of other people. It really, it's, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fun job. (laughs) (laughs) For both of us. Yes, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) If there's people that want to learn more about your work, is there anywhere that you would plug them or connect them to? Uh, my personal website is, uh, actually, I kept it from my passion parties days. Nice. So my website is mypassionangel.com. Nice. Okay. <laughs> and I'm also a member of TAP, which, uh, T-A-A-A-P dot org, okay. which is the Ace and Arrow Advocacy Project. And, uh, that is a great place to go if people want to learn more about asexuality and aromanticism. Great. Yeah. Thank you for all of your resources and your time. Mm-hmm. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed today's episode, then leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you're a part of the anarchist community, then follow us on Instagram or nominate a guest for the show by sending in a letter to modernanarchypodcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.